MSW Media. This week, we were rocked with news of heinous hate crimes. First, a Trump supporter in Florida mailed explosive devices containing threats to prominent Democrats. Democrats who Trump had called out by name in his speeches. Then, an anti-Semitic murderer entered a synagogue in Pittsburgh and killed 11 Jews who were attending a ceremony and then shot multiple police officers who tried to apprehend him. Why have we seen an uptick in hate crimes since the election of Donald Trump? And what can we do to combat hate and deter crimes like this in the future? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Patty, hey. I, I have to tell you, this um, the, the news this week has been as depressing as news can get. And it turned horrifying. It was a really crazy beginning to the week when we we learned about the pipe bombs being sent to George Soros first, and then, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and President Obama. But uh, the tragedy yesterday, I was I was driving in um, to do this podcast, and there there's a ramp with a massive uh, American flag and a flag of Chicago that is flying at half-mast. And as you take that turn, um, you know, you see it every day, and, and it's it's um, a, it was such a um, bizarre moment for me to think, right, this is something we should all be standing or sitting or meditating on and thinking what this means as Americans. The flag should be at half staff. And then I thought, well, at least he did something right. And I shouldn't have to feel that way about the president of the United States. Well, there's something he did that was at least a step in the right direction when yesterday he still had a rally already, you know, we were always told about how it's too soon to talk about uh, gun legislation. And here he was saying, well, if there'd only been armed guards at the synagogue mm -hmm. and all these things started going through my head. And, and I just it's it's stupefying that we are at this place in American culture. Well, there definitely was this element of blame the victim from mm -hmm. Trump. So, you know, you had all of these Democrats who had been called out by name by Trump. And I think that's important because. You know, Maxine Waters is, you know, she's a, 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 you know, she's certainly, you know, a prominent congresswoman. But, you know, there's 535 people in Congress. Um, I don't think it was any mistake that she was one of the handful of people who was chosen by this man. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, he is she is somebody that Trump calls out all the time in his speeches. And so, um, you, you know, her and many others were terrorized by this. And then Trump said, well, the media, it's the media's fault. The media's the fake news or whatever, whatever he was he was uh, railing against. That is res what's responsible for this man who was a Trump supporter uh, and was uh, targeting people who had been themselves the target of Trump. And then after that, he's essentially, you know, Trump was blaming a synagogue for having in insufficient security mm -hmm. as if. 
they had to be prepared for a man wielding an assault rifle entering their facility and committing mass murder. I mean, and he was equipped to have a gun battle. So regardless of I mean, you only I think when you have that as a solution, you are also uh, accepting that you will probably have a higher body count because now you're going to have a shootout. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a man who shot multiple police officers and um, it was difficult to apprehend him. So you could imagine if there's a security guard there who was armed. I mean, it's it's not clear to me no. that that person who had been caught by surprise would have been able to do anything other than per- perhaps surrender their life um, in, in fending this person off. You know, in any event, I just don't think that's the appropriate thing to say no. uh, to a community that is grieving. Um, and especially when we're always told it's too soon. Right. And and so if we can remove that now, well, and, and the conversations that we have, because that is kind of going to the heart of what this, our topic is today, is how much as a leader does Trump influence or impact this or have an effect. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of people would say, oh, it's, you can't blame him. Well, look at Bernie Sanders. Was it his fault that, uh, that on that baseball diamond that mm-hmm. a shooter showed up? Well, did, does Bernie Sanders hold rallies glorifying violence against critics? Mm-hmm. I, I've never I, I've I've yet to see a single time where Bernie Sanders has encouraged that kind of behavior, body slamming a journalist, you know, lock them up, all kinds of things that that people cheer at his rallies. That's that, that's that, insightful. That's true. I mean, we literally had a rally here in Illinois um, the day that there was uh, this shooting. Right. Unbelievable. Here in Illinois, the governor of the state of Illinois attended and mm-hmm. many other, you know, re- we had Republican congressmen flying from the Chicago area all the way down to southern Illinois so that they could be there on stage with Donald Trump right after this mm-hmm. event. And they there was people chanting, lock her up and, you know, cheers and, and him attacking and, and belittling enemies during that rally, which was right after this mass murder. And, and I don't know how people don't see this as a, a, a it has a feeling of a cult because it's not Republican. This is not a Republican movement. He is not a Republican. He is somebody who is only goes by divisiveness. That is unless the Republicans have decided that this is their entire platform is how can we divide people and, and dehumanize an entire group of people, whether it's immigrants or the Jewish population or whoever, you know, I, or I guess an entire group of people known as snowflakes and buttercups to them. Well, I will say, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, Patty. Uh-huh. I think I would say it's fair to say that Trump is not a conservative. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination what he's doing is conservative. If you can, you know, uh, traditionally conservative is somebody who doesn't want to change the status quo in any way. I think he's a very radical mm-hmm. person in terms of how he wants to change America in a way that uh, I think is negative. But I think the modern Republican Party has turned into the party of Trump. Very much the the I don't know at this stage what it means to be a Republican if you don't support Trump, because they have chased everyone mm-hmm. out who does not support Trump. There are very, very few prominent Republicans now who are vocal critics of Donald Trump. I can think John Kasich is really the only one that comes to mind. Now, there are uh, conservatives, people who at times had been prominent in the Republican Party who are critical of Trump. People like David Jolly or Max Boot, who we had on the podcast recently, uh, who are conservative for many mm-hmm. years. But many of those people are being driven out of the party. And uh, in fact, um, you know, I, there's, for example, the Washington Post has a conservative columnist, uh, uh, Jennifer, I think her name is Jennifer Rubin. And she was called out that they called out the Washington Post got a letter from many prominent 
uh, cons- uh, Republicans who mm-hmm. said, well, she's not a real Republican. She's not a real conservative because she doesn't support Trump. I hear what you're saying. And those are all folks who uh, don't have any ability to help corral what President Trump is doing. So they have, I think, joined the cult of Trump rather than being Republicans anymore. I think that there is an incentive there. So right. I think if you're somebody, I mean, if you look at who's on Fox News, they have, you know, young people who've graduated from college a couple of years ago um, or, you know, very, or didn't graduate from college at all. I mean, who are on television talking at length, giving their views uh, in support of Trump. Right. Um, you know, and it's if you are somebody who is willing to um, somebody who is willing to. Um, support Trump and push his agenda. It's much. It's fairly easy to get a microphone. Um, oh, no doubt. Yeah, and especially in parts of the country, it is. And Florida being one of those places, uh, large parts of the state of Illinois. I mean, I, I, you can visit these, you know, districts and see where, if you, you know, say that you're with Trump and you support him, that's the way to go. And and I will say this: when it comes to these uh, conversations and and. Actually, conversation isn't even the right way to describe it. I I don't even go on social media that much anymore because I I find myself wanting to, you know, sort of contradict somebody and show them the proof or or especially this week when everyone was saying, oh, well, you know, the the Democrats just sent these pipe bombs to themselves. Mm -hmm. And when that obviously became uh, disproven by law enforcement, when they apprehended somebody whose van was covered in cult like material with, Mm -hmm. you know, Hillary Clinton in a cross, you know, the uh, target cross. Crosshairs or the the sights of, a, of what you presume to be some sort of automatic weapon, uh, you know. They they I I don't even. There's no. Oh, I guess we were wrong, and, and I guess that's part of it too. There's no. Oh, I was wrong about that. There's no accepting responsibility for spreading disinformation and hatred ever. And that's mm-hmm. it, it is infuriating. And I just don't even get involved in it anymore. And by the way, with that van, I was wondering if President Trump had considered making that his new decoration for his motorcade limo. Because that seems to be well, I mean, but he, you know, I'm sure he saw that and went, huh. If he had seen that before that guy sent the pipe bombs, he'd be like, there's a good American. And that's the truth of that. I will tell you, you know, I was not on social media as much this week. I was very busy on behalf of clients this week. But uh, the times I was, you know, I was definitely seeing before this man was apprehended, the the guy was sending the bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of conservatives saying this was just a conspiracy. The, the, this was actually the liberals who were sending bombs to themselves. I don't know. I, it doesn't make any sense to me why you would have a liberal sending bombs to President Obama, President Clinton and and others. Uh, Cory Booker, whoever. Uh, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But that was the argument. In fact, you know, one of those young people who was on Fox News, Candace Owens, was saying she had, she could say one with 100 percent certainty, 100 percent certainty, this was not a conservative who did this. And I, and that, has she walked that back? No, I mean mm-hmm. she deleted that tweet, uh, but she hasn't said anything since this man was caught. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say I, like I said, I wasn't on social media as much. I was at um, CNN, the CNN bureau in D.C. because mm-hmm. I was uh, visiting the Justice Department. I was in uh, in the in town, and so I went over there, and wow. there was a lot of fear. In, in CNN's bureau the day that the bomb was received in New York at the uh, CNN uh, bureau in, in New York. Um, you know, I I was actually, you know, surprised by the level of anxiety that journalists had. And I, I get it to an extent. I had, you know, I had been threatened many times and as a federal prosecutor in and had much more, I would say, you know, had very serious threats on my life. 
And it can be, you don't know until you're in that situation how scary that can be. Mm-hmm. I think for them, they're not used to it. So, you know, I, if, if I was still a federal prosecutor and I, a bomb had come in our offices, I'd be like, well, that's, that's concerning, but I would have just gone about my job. I think, you know, a lot of journalists are rattled and a lot of them are afraid of being harmed. They're afraid of losing their lives. They think that it's, some, it's a matter of time before one of them is targeted or killed. And there's a genuine fear. And I worry that it, it affects how they write the news, that there, there'll be times where there's an important story that they pull punches on because they don't want to become a target. Well, and I'll tell you, uh, at WGN Radio, we struggle with this because we have been the uh, target of threats. Uh, there was somebody apprehended in Illinois who uh, mm. I can't go into any details, but we are often labeled as this anti-Trump you know, libtard station when you and really there are very there are a lot of balanced conversations, but people hear what they want to hear. And that's not just limited to people who are incited to violence. Those are people who just think that we are anti-Trump or anti-conservative. And there there's an inability now to hear the words and to develop your own idea of what the intent is. Well, let me switch gears for a minute uh, before we bring in our guests and just talk about a couple things I thought were interesting in the legal front. Yes. So <clears throat> one thing that I think listeners may not know, and I never I did not have a chance to comment on any of this in social media, is that typically murdering people uh, is not a federal crime. Uh, you have to murder people who where there's sort of a nexus to certain types of federal laws. So. You know, if you look at the let's to talk about the first set of charges, uh, the charges against the man who was sending the bombs, uh, it's interesting. So, you know, he was charged with essentially, um, you know, sending these devices and making these threats against former uh, federal officials. And that's really um, what may you know, those are the, the I say the primary crimes that he's charged with. And really, uh, that man chose poorly by choosing a former, you know, Two former presidents and, uh, you know, current and former former senators and others to send these bombs to that very much heightens the potential penalties he's facing on the federal side and makes it a federal prosecution instead of a state prosecution. But no matter what, he you know, it is a crime to send explosive devices through the mail uh, across interstate lines. No matter what, he would be um, responsible for that. One thing I thought was interesting was the uh, charges were in the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan. Um, not in Florida where the man was located, where he was apprehended. Really? Um, and I think that's interesting because um, really the, the Southern District of New York only has venue over, um, in other words, the ability to bring charges against crimes that took place in, in, some, in part or all in Manhattan. So some of the crimes that he's charged with I don't think could ultimately be charged in New York. There's everything is laid out in these charges. I assume that his attorney is going to try to work out a plea deal. So it may not matter. But if I was representing him and and I had to be, you know, obviously as as a lawyer, you have to be zealously advocating on behalf of your client. You know, I would be arguing to the Justice Department that many of those charges couldn't be brought in their current form. Of course, they could they could refile him down in Florida, which is probably a worse place for him to be uh, charged. Um, But. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Why would it be a worse place? I, pardon me. Well, because um, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect just at the back of the envelope that the judges there might um, have harsher sentencing than in Manhattan. That would be my guess. I mean, certainly, you know, sentencing is not always uniform throughout the country, although there are efforts like the federal sentencing guidelines to make them uniform. Uh, and in Chicago, for example, where I um, prosecuted crimes, uh, certainly the sentences for certain types of crimes were less than in other parts, uh, you know, you would be better off 
being convicted in Chicago than in Wyoming or Texas for some of the same crimes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of that. Then, of course, we had federal charges brought against the man who has murdered people in a synagogue. And w- as I mentioned up top, murder is usually not a federal crime. There, there's actually a special you know, hate crime statute that makes it a crime to interfere with people practicing their religious beliefs. And so the fact that he murdered people in the course of their practice of their religious beliefs, they were at a bris at the time, um, which is essentially it's a circumcision ceremony. They, um, you know, he is now charged with very serious crimes. He's looking, uh, if he doesn't, I would be very surprised if that man doesn't spend the rest of his life in prison at the very least. Good. I couldn't I couldn't disagree. And I suspect our guest uh, won't disagree either. Um, So let's bring in James Gagliano. Uh, He is a former uh, FBI supervisory special agent. Uh, He's also a CNN law enforcement analyst. Uh, I have had the pleasure of not only meeting him in the CNN green room, uh, but appearing with him on air. He's also uh, was on the scene in New York uh, when the bomb uh, had been received at the explosive device had been received at CNN's New York headquarters. So he was one of those guys you saw out in the street uh, with a microphone with some of the hosts like Chris Cuomo uh, on on television, breaking it all down. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us. Renato, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Look forward to joining you guys. So... Can you tell us, you've been on the other end of this, you've investigated uh, violent crimes, you've uh, supervised agents who are doing the same thing. What are the challenges when you are investigating a threat case like uh, like the uh, bombing case earlier this week? Well, from the perspective of any type of crime that involves explosives, the, the number one issue is that if something is detonated or explodes, it's very, very difficult to, to harvest or to collect the, the forensic evidence that you need to make the case. And in this instance, where you had 14 unexploded packages that, uh, that the subject, Mr. Syak, had, had put together and mailed out to, to various uh, political people as well as to, to CNN, um, the good news was, first and foremost, is that there were no casualties, nobody got hurt, that mm-hmm. the, the explosive chain was not able to be, to be set off. But the second piece of that is, is that uh, investigators were given just a treasure trove of, of, of good evidence and obviously leads before they caught him um, to, to actually lead to his uh, arrest. So that's the good news. So um, these investigations are tough because usually in bombing cases, the bomb goes off. Um, we have means to go back and, and harvest. Um, let's go back to 1993 in the first World Trade Center bombing um, in February of 1993. Uh, the day that that happened, I, I stood over that crater and looked into it and thought to myself, how in the hell would we ever, would our folks ever be able to find the evidence to, put, to catch the people and, and bring them to justice? And sure enough, a small piece, a tiny piece of a VIN, a vehicle identification number on the, on the rider truck truck that had been rented with the explosives was actually detected, found, and, and, and tracked backwards. So bombing cases are difficult usually because you're struggling to put the evidence together. In this one, uh, this guy wasn't exactly the best bomb maker in the world. Um, <laughs> exactly. So it, it, it made it a little bit easier for investigators to track him down, but still just uh, an amazing job by the FBI, the NYPD, and all the local partners. Well, no, no question. I mean, they certainly uh, found him very quickly. You know, one thing that obviously helped is a a fingerprint on one of the explosive devices or on the packaging of one of the explosive devices. Uh, and that, you know, people 
Um, I think uh, lay people overestimate how easy it is to find fingerprints. I know in my experience, and I'm sure you 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 probably had a similar experience. You know, people think fingerprints are all over the place, but often it's very hard to get a good print that's not smudged. A lot of surfaces don't hold prints, et cetera. Absolutely. And look, you know, police sciences and policing methodologies have uh, you become so advanced. I mean, just, you know, just, just a, a couple of decades ago, um, to your point, very difficult to harvest latent prints. We've gotten much, much, much better. I mean, much more sophisticated in doing it. We've actually been able to pull prints off of off of corpses. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about wow. the, you know, how, how unbelievable that would be. Um, in, in this instance, you know, people are obviously aware that, you know, their, their, their fingers, the, the, the grooves, the arches, and the, 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 the tints on their fingers, you know, leave prints. And so in this instance, I don't have any inside information, but I have to assume that the guy was trying to be as careful as possible. But you know this in the business you're in as well. There are no perfect crimes. So as careful as this guy was to keep his fingerprints off of everything except one of the 14 packages, um, that's ultimately what uh, led investigators to be able to make a match because he was a prior convicted felon. So they had his prints on file as well as two small portions of DNA matter that were found inside two of the envelopes, and he obviously had a DNA sample on hand because he'd been a convicted felon. So you think about how far we've come in, in police sciences and the fact that we're able to take DNA, something that we were not able to convict people on it until 1987 in this country, um, and a latent fingerprint that I guarantee you this guy just, I mean, you try, he tried to be the perfect criminal and just wasn't able to do it. So great job to the investigators in this one. It's interesting, too, you know, there was uh, there's language, if you look at the charging document in the Southern District of New York, there's language in which they talk about the DNA, and it was, they don't say it's, hey, this is a perfect 100% match. Uh, what they talk about is, well, there's there's certain identifiers or, or certain aspects of the DNA profile that, that, that uh, are consistent with it being him. You know, can, are you able to, could you explain to us what the difference is? I've been, you know, in a situation in court where I've had to try to explain that difference to a jury. It's not easy to do. It, it isn't easy to do. I mean, there, there are markers. I mean, obviously, this is genetic material. And, and I'll just use, you know, uh, from a personal experience here. So recently, my family, we're trying to track down and figure out, you know, you know, where, you know, you know, where we've come from. I mean, I knew that, you know, half of half of me is is Sicilian because my father's 100 percent Sicilian. I knew my mother had been, you know, she had parts of Scottish and Irish and English in her. So we were trying to do that. The first sample that went in, they come back and they give you a basic, you know, we believe that you've got this much percentage of Northern Africa, this much percentage of Eastern Europe, this much percentage of Italy and possibly Sicily. And then they, they further refine it and further refine it and further distill it. Now, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand exactly how the process works. But a couple weeks later, we got one that's a little more refined. And a couple weeks later, a little more refined. And the way that I explain this is, you know, generally speaking, when, uh, you know, a, a medical examiner is looking at a homicide case, um, they can make determinations by what happened to the body. But you know how this works. 
you usually wait a week or so till you get the toxicology reports back. It just, the science just takes longer. So they were able to determine that this guy within a reasonable, you know, 98, 99, 97% was a match to this. So I'm sure we'll find something, you know, as we go further on that will probably make it more of a definitive match. And I don't know what the exact percentage was, but they were comfortable enough with saying this DNA matched and, you know, it would be a one in, you know, one millionth chance that it wasn't this person. So you know how these cases work. This is just one piece. We're not going to hang everything on the DNA. We're not going to hang everything on the latent fingerprint. We're not going to hang everything on the circumstantial evidence, i.e. the clown car van with all the partisan nonsense on the outside and the stuff that he put on social media. But investigations are taking pieces, a bunch of different pieces, putting them together, painting a picture, and hopefully bring that together, and there'll be enough there that we can convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that this guy was the guy that did it. James, uh, the you know, going to all that, all the evidence, making sure that they were able to track him down, and of course, you know, the president rightfully congratulated law enforcement, and and as we all do, I wondered what you thought when you saw that van covered in all that, all that you know, the memes about President uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton in the crosshairs. You know, I, I know that you shared an article about emotionally disturbed persons. Do, do does law enforcement have the kind of resources and on any scale to track individuals? like this, you know, with posts on social media, driving around in vans like this, is there a way to sort of have a database of individuals like that? Gosh, Patty, that's such, I mean, that's a question that we could, we could dig into from so many different angles. Look, um, we, we cherish our Constitution. We cherish the Bill of Rights. 1791, we earned the First Amendment, which says that, you know, barring going inside a crowded theater and screaming fire at the top of your lungs or saying something to foment anarchy or inciting a riot, you can say whatever you want. And, and here's the tough part, you know. Um, there's a lot of things that we don't want to hear, you know, normal people. We don't want to hear bigotry. We don't want to hear racist statements or homophobic statements or, um, you know, uh, prejudice. Uh, we don't want to see those kind of things. The problem is that the First Amendment protects that stuff. And I think what your question is, as I'm, as I'm distilling this down, is where do we draw that line? Where do we say that somebody that's just, quote, unquote, popping off um, could potentially be a threat. And, and look, um, you know, I, I, looked at, I, I looked it up today because um, I was speaking on air on CNN about this. You know, the American Bar Association, um, they basically said that, you know, look, you know, hate speech um, is not illegal. Uh, but when does that hate speech move into a hate crime? Now, we know that hate crime is a crime that is motivated by prejudice towards race or ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or religion, one of those type things, and there's attendance violence attached to it, attendant violence attached to it. Hate speech is just something that's said that's offensive, and certainly this guy um, made statements. I mean, in, in both cases, obviously, we just had the recent shooting in, 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 in Pittsburgh at the, at the synagogue and the slaughter of 18 innocent people, and both of these people said things online that a lot of lay people sit there and look at it and go, hey, FBI, law enforcement, um, this guy was hiding in plain sight. Both of these people, why didn't you do something? And you could say that about the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter. You know, it made statements online. The problem is, you know, 
Yeah, it's difficult to police the internet. You know, look what happened in the Pittsburgh shooting case. The guy, got, you know, is not able to put his vile, you know, infective and 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 just hateful rhetoric on Twitter. But he goes to a place like Gab that gives him an open forum there. And you say, well, why can't you police that? Well, I, this sounds this sounds this sounds like a cop out to say it when you go. It's a resource issue. And then also, if if you just look at my Twitter feed and some of the the, the lovely welcoming comments. I get from people right? that, you know, decide to weigh in on something. And there's a bunch of them where I go, wow, how could Twitter not recognize that that is? But I guess the determination, and Renato could probably speak this better than me, is from the legal perspective, there has to be a determination on a credible threat. And law enforcement sometimes has that jump ball where they have to make a determination. Somebody, you know, calls in or somebody refers a, a, an Internet threat to them, and police have to make that assessment. And I'll tell you what we did in the FBI in these, in these situations where there was a yeah, perceived threat. We would do something called a knock and talk, which meant that we didn't have anything to lock them up. We didn't have anything to charge them with. The Southern District wasn't going to bring charges against this person, but we still went out, knocked on their door, said, hey, we just came across this posting that you made where you were threatening to, you know, put people in body bags. Hey, we wanted to find out what you meant by that. And usually, you know, the person, oh, I didn't mean that. It was a heat of the moment. It was wild hyperbole. But at least they know that they're on our radar. And that's something that, that law enforcement does. Is it enough? Well, clearly the past week has shown that it's not enough, but I just don't know what the answer to that is. We cherish our civil liberties in this country. We cherish our privacy, and yet at the same time, we want to be able to send our kids to school. We want to send people to a mosque or a synagogue or a church and not worry about them getting gunned down. So this is something I think that we're going to be discussing, folks, for, for, for a long time going forward, trying to figure out where that sweet spot is here. I will say this, James, and before I let Renato ask another question, I just kind of wish he'd been pulled over for obstruction of vision, you know, when <laughs> with all of his windows covered think. like that. You're right. Uh, I mean, and, and, and that's, I mean, the guy's driving around the Coney Island clown car, and you're just like, how does that, you know, how did that not get noticed? I mean, when you start putting crosshairs on, on political opponents' faces, I, I, I get it. People can argue it's satire. They can argue it's hyperbole. They can argue free speech. And, and that's the problem. We, we, we cherish our civil liberties here. We want to live in an open society. We want to be able to pop off at elected officials. But at some point in time, you know, I, I guess from the FBI perspective, you look at these things and you say the reason why this is the, the FBI is working this as a hate crime is because hateful speech can inspire people. People can aspire to do things because they hear things that are hateful. And, and that's the thing. We have to figure out where that sweet spot is between what is tolerated and what is considered criminal. Yeah, you know, I will tell you, um, James, was just talk you were just talking a second ago about the difficulty when you have a threat case, how do you parse whether or not it's a credible threat? And, you know, I investigated threat cases. I There was a threat case, for example, a, a man had threatened a, a public official that many listeners would probably know the person's name. I investigated that and sent agents in to do exactly what you said, to do a not, uh, they essentially did a knock and talk, talk to this guy. Uh, you know, and this is a guy who was, I think, making drunken uh, threats against a public yep. official. And, you know, sounded very, they were ominous and that official was very worried. But when you talk to this guy, he was clearly a, a mope who wasn't really going to do anything about it, but he was angry. And I think in that case, the right thing to do was to just send them in to talk to him uh, and not to waste public resources and time 
prosecuting him for a threat and get you know him getting a very a, a very minor sentence. But it certainly, if if he had come back a, a year later and did something, I'm sure you know people would have been questioning my decisions and the decisions of of everyone who concurred with uh, with my judgment there. So it's a hard thing. Absolutely, 2020 hindsight, it's a wonderful thing, guys. And and to your point, I had a number of assistant United States attorneys do the same thing with me. Hey, we don't have enough here right now to bring any charges. And if we could, there's no, he's not going to do any time for this. So, look, what do you think about it? And we would discuss it. And sometimes just the presence of two FBI agents knocking on a door, showing their credentials, doing what we call, and you referenced it, a knock and talk, sometimes that has a deterrent effect. The problem is, again, look, there's only 12,000 FBI agents in the entire country. There are 36,000 NYPD cops just in the five boroughs. So think about that. You know, there are three times as many, you know, New York City police officers as there are FBI agents. And, and the problem is a lot of this is triage. It's looking at things and trying to divine whether or not somebody popping off is just popping off in the heat of the moment, or is this somebody that this could possibly fester and then become something worse. And then, you know, like we saw in Pittsburgh, uh, I'm going in. So Mm -hmm. it's a a tough thing. I mean, I I understand how law enforcement and and certainly, you know, at the federal level, you know, the the Department of Justice, I mean, trying to figure out what we can do. Where do we find that sweet spot? And I think this week, guys, I think this week is going to, um, I think it's going to gin up a lot of conversations about this, about what is too far and what is constitutionally Mm -hmm. perspective protected speech. Well, you know, one thing, one point I discussed before we brought you in is how most murder cases are not federal cases. It's actually a rare and special circumstance. So here we had a fairly, a more recent federal law uh, in in Pittsburgh that that is being used to prosecute a man who committed, obviously, an extraordinarily heinous uh, hate, hate crime. Uh, in Pittsburgh, murdered you know eleven people and shot many others, including police officers who were trying to help uh, apprehend him. And uh, you know, I wonder there. You know, obviously, uh, in that case, you know, local PD have a lot of experience investigating murders. Have you ever investigated a case like that where there was a shooting or a murder, and you were brought in to handle that? And you know, is that a little different handling that as an FBI agent uh, versus, or, or and how are you partnering with uh, local? Uh, police in doing that? Wow, great question. All right. Um, so, so here's the thing, you know, on the federal side, absent being part of something like a RICO case, which is a Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act case, where we could tie a criminal enterprise or a criminal organization into a number of different predicates. And the predicates could be extortion, they could be gambling, it could be running a prostitution ring, it could be, you know, uh, murders, it could be assaults, it could be, you know, robberies, violent felonies. That's really the only way that the FBI works, quote-unquote, homicide cases. Now, um, you know, as we tie this into what we're talking about right now, you know, why did the FBI take over, and when I say take over, why did they get purview in the Pittsburgh case, uh, the Tree of Life case? Why were they you know, why are we looking at this as a hate crime case? Well, again, people ask all the time, what's the difference between terrorism or somebody just committing, in this instance, 11 homicides and a hate crime? Well, it's this, okay? Yes, those are 11 homicides. Terrorism is very narrowly defined, right? 
So it is violence or intimidation or the threat of that in the pursuit of political or social goals. And, you know, again, the Department of Justice, which you're familiar with, Renato, would narrowly define that, and they would make that determination. And we may see some charges coming forward in the bomber case that are terrorist-related. We may see some charges coming forward in the Pittsburgh case that are terrorism-related. Now, people say all the time, well, why the hell is the FBI involved in this kind of stuff? Well, and I'm going to put my history hat on here, my FBI history hat on, because back during World War One, the FBI did investigate civil rights um, cases. I mean, they didn't make a, they didn't make the news because back in those days, the states kind of prosecuted those cases on their own. It wasn't until the civil rights movement where some states were not taking the responsibility. The onus was on them to handle that, and they weren't doing it, that the FBI got involved. Now, uh, you know, for your listeners, um, you know, I'm sure many people have seen the movie Mississippi Burning, right? So that's the 1964 case where there's three young civil rights workers. They go down to Philadelphia, Mississippi. They're trying to register um, some of the poor black folks that live in that area to vote. They're trying to get out the vote, and this is 1964. So there was three guys, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and uh, James Cheney. And the three of them were essentially kidnapped by law enforcement down there in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and they were murdered, and then they were buried under a dam. So the FBI got involved with the case, and why was that? Because, well, local law enforcement down there wasn't as, let's just say that the investigation wasn't as robust as it probably should have been. So J. Edgar Hoover dispatched agents down there. They fanned out. It's the largest. It's, it, to this date, I believe it's still the largest federal investigation in the state of Mississippi. And basically, uh, I believe three years later, four years later, I'm not exactly sure, I think it was 1967, um, they charged and convicted seven men. Some of them were law enforcement folks. Seven men, um, not with the murders, but with depriving the three civil rights workers of their constitutional rights. Now think about that. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, that was the only way that you were going to send this scum, and that's what they were, to jail, because you couldn't get them on a homicide case, which was clear-cut. You had to bring them, because the feds could not bring a murder case, you had to get them on, you mm-hmm. deprived the civil rights workers of their constitutional rights to what? To live and breathe. So... I understand the utility of it back then. I certainly understand, you know, the necessity of it and why that happened. Now, the argument today is going to be, you know, why is the federal government still involved? Things aren't the way they were back in the 1960s. You guys need to step back. And that's a fair argument. We can certainly debate that. But I was happy to see this be labeled a hate crime. I mean, look, you know, we always want to wait till all the facts are in, but this one was quite obvious from the onset what Mm -hmm. this was. I don't think there was any guesswork that needed to be done. But I like the fact that the FBI was brought in the onset. Uh, I'm a little partial. I still believe it is the greatest law enforcement organization in the world. They will get to the bottom of it, and some people may say it's an open and shut case, but they will make sure that the prosecutors in this instance have everything they need because United is Renato, in, you know, in law and order, the first half hour is the investigation, then we hand it over, the second half hour is the prosecution, and they'll <laughs> take it home, and hopefully, but hopefully within that 60 minutes, we'll make sure that this guy goes to jail for a long time if he's not given the death penalty. James, depending on the day and the situation, sometimes the president agrees with you on the FBI, but on other days he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will say, yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and, and I think everyone listening yeah. to this, you know, to go to James' comments, it, it knows the special history that that Jewish people have had in terms of you know persecution, 
both in the United States and abroad. And unfortunately, uh, I know, and I'm sure all many of us know, Jewish people who have been afraid for their lives. Uh, I know Jewish people who um, unfortunately have been afraid to go to their places of worship. And there are synagogues here in the Chicago area that have armed guards during high holy days, uh, even before this incident, because yeah. of concerns uh, and, and the amount of death threats uh, that they have received. You know, I, to switch gears, uh, James, I wanted to talk to you because I— on the day on the day that the bomb had been received in the New York uh, uh, headquarters at, at CNN, the Time Warner Center, I was in the D.C. Bureau, and it was really palpable to me how much fear and uh, heightened— uh, the, everyone's uh, alarms were heightened down there, and were, they were very concerned and worried. A lot of just staff uh, who are working at CNN, who are just folks behind the scenes doing their jobs, were very— uh, upset and worried about what had happened. We're worried that perhaps uh, something would happen to them down in that bureau. And I was wondering if somebody was up there in New York. I think at least I saw you on the street with with uh, Chris Cuomo at one point. Uh, what what was your sense of of the impact that that had at CNN and and the impact that all of these threats, uh, more recent threats and hatred, have had on the media? Wow, all right, boy, to unpack that. So. You know, I, I spent eight years in, in the U.S. Army as an infantry officer and 25 years in the FBI, so 33 years in, in the government, and, you know, I was a SWAT team leader, a member of the FBI's hostage rescue team. I, I don't think it's any surprise that most people would probably expect that law enforcement and the military generally hew to just to the right of center. We're more on the conservative side of things. And I had zero relationship with the media, with the fourth estate, when I was on the job. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I was in position sometimes where I had to make statements or I had to talk to people and everything. But, I mean, I just kept, I kept them at arm's length. Um, so to find myself at CNN um, in, my, in my second act after retiring in January of 2016, I mean, I, I, look, no one could have predicted this. To what your question is, Renato, I was on the phone with Jim and Poppy on a phoner. Tom Fuentes was Skyping in. It was, you know, just after 9 o'clock, and they asked me, can you do a quick phone? We want to talk about the package bomb that had been sent to uh, George Soros up in Westchester. Sure. So I'm, I'm sitting in my pajamas, you know, got my footy pajamas on, <laughs> drinking a cup of coffee. I'm on the phone with Jim and Poppy. They're great interviewers. Um, they ask me a question, then they go to Tom, they come back to me, and then I hear Poppy go, uh, James, hang on one second. And then Jim Shuto goes, yeah, we're hearing some alarms here in the building. Um, and then he didn't want to panic anybody, so he goes, okay, so, Tom, let me ask you again about this. So the, the bomb and the device, blah, blah. and then he goes, um, hang on one second. All right, they're asking us to evacuate the building. Uh, we're going to toss to a commercial, um, and we're going to get off right now. And then I'm like, holy moly. So, I, you know, this is what I used to do for a living. Um, I run upstairs, my, you know, my wife says to me, where are you going? I'm like, i, I got to head down to the bureau. She goes, are you insane? What are you talking about? They're evacuating the building. I'm like, yeah, but when you're programmed this way, this is what we do. And guess what? My friends are down there. So I jump in the car. Obviously, you know, I'm going to throw a name at you, Renata. You know, I talk to Rebecca, and she goes, yeah, mm -hmm. just try to get as close as you can. You know, they're going to try to set up a remote location to, to, to broadcast from. So I go screaming down the Palisades. I get to the George Washington Bridge, hustle down the west side, beach my car on the west side highway because the police have all these blocks, you know, blocked off. You're down in the D.C. Bureau. They've done a, a more than capable job of picking up the slack. They stay on the air. Then Jim and Poppy come back up. I rush over to the corner of... 
what would be 58th and 9th Avenue, and they have set up a remote location. And boom, I walk up, sweats pouring off the, my, my brow, throw my jacket on. They, uh, they say, stand over here, no makeup. You know, we're not going to wire you up. Just talk to Jim, blah, blah, blah. And they're still in the air. So what was my perspective on this? Well, you know, I looked at this like this was an assault on friends of mine. And, you know, that no matter what your political leanings were, what, you, what ideology you adhere to, I mean, you, you sent a device, and, and here's the thing, guys. You know, people have argued. You know, people are trying to, you know, well, it wasn't a real bomb. It was a fake bomb. Well, it was, uh, it was this, it was that. Look, I, I was a crisis management coordinator for New York City for the FBI for four years. The special agent bomb technicians answered to me, as, long, as well as the SWAT team and the, the operations center and the, the bomb techs, the negotiation team, the, uh, all the crisis response elements, about 300 people for the New York City office of the FBI. Those packages, all 14 of them, had four components that if the electrical charge, the stimulation, right, the mm-hmm. explosive the explosive chain, as we call it in the business, had set off, would have killed people. You had a power supply, a battery. You had an initiator, which is usually a, a blasting cap, which people, you know, make at home nowadays. You know, it's not even mm-hmm. something you have to buy. You had a switch, right? And you had explosives in there. So those four things, especially with explosives being something that are inherently unstable, those four things, heat, shock, friction, set them off. What is friction? That's somebody with a polyester shirt on rubbing their sleeves together. So to suggest that, well, they wouldn't have killed anybody, or, well, he only used glass as a fragmentation. It wasn't, you know, steel, you know, ball bearings, or he, he used a PVC pipe. He didn't use a cast iron pipe. Okay, it wouldn't have brought down the Time Warner Center. It would not have brought that building down. Renato, you're familiar with that building. It would not have brought the building down. It would have killed the people that opened it. So was it clumsily put together? Yes. Did it appear that maybe it was somebody that did not know exactly? Look, there's only a few successful bomb makers around because there's a reason for that. It's a, it's a, it's a skill set that not a lot of people have, and a successful bomb is one that the bomb maker walks away from. This guy was able to walk away from 14 of them, and one of the reasons was because they just weren't constructed. They wouldn't put in series the right way, and they didn't go off. But make no, just make no bones about it. The four components of an IED, an improvised explosive device, a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction, which an IED is, the four components were there. So sobering day, a day where, again, I felt, um, I felt like I was back in the business again, but instead of being on the inside of the police tape, I was just on the outside of the police tape. And Renato, I'm sure you can share my same feelings. I could not have felt prouder to see the way the folks from hair and makeup to stage directors, from audio, from the mobile units, to the camera crew, to the anchors. I could not have been prouder to the way those people said, they're not taking us off the air, we're going to continue to broadcast, we're going to pull together, we're going to do this as a team. And it made me so proud. I, I felt the same way. You know, when you're in law enforcement, you get used to stuff like that. I, I had been threatened many times, and... Um, you get used to that, that, and I think it's something where someone like yourself is, or my, even when I was doing it, you're able to shrug off. But for them, that that's something that was a new experience for them, and I thought they handled it very well. Um, 
So, oh, yeah, no, I, I know that we've talked a lot about the the evidence and the legal aspect of this, and 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 your you know your telling of this, I think, adds a piece that many people obviously would not otherwise have. And I wonder, and, and maybe this is for both of you, I wonder what your perspectives are when it comes to where we are right now and what you think the impact, because you are working with journalists now, folks that, you know, maybe they've been criticized in the past, but now have become really daily targets from the president in his rhetoric. Do you guys have any thoughts on how that uh, it has an impact in the situation we are, we find ourselves in now? James? Yeah. And, and, you know, Patty, that's, again, I, I hate to keep like repeating myself and going great question and so much to unpack there, but that's what it is. Um, look, um, I was critical of President Obama back during, you know, his second term when, you know, when cops were getting shot, obviously post Ferguson, which, you know, took place in the summer of 2014. And then we had Baltimore and, you know, we had the Trayvon Martin, um, you know, case that, uh, that was actually in 2012, but all those different things. And I was I was very critical of the president at that time. I thought that, you know, I didn't think he was as careful with his words as he could have been. And 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 President Obama is a gifted orator and a man who was very careful in in choosing his words. He was very precise. And and the person in the office right now, who's who's our president, um, is much more impertinent. Is much more prone to if I feel it, I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be impulsive, and I'm going to you know I'll, I'll let things sort themselves out afterwards. So uh, I was very critical of President Obama, and I have to be equally critical and more critical of President Trump because words do matter. I didn't blame President Obama for cops being slaughtered. In Dallas, I didn't blame President Obama for cops being slaughtered in Baton Rouge, and I certainly didn't blame President Obama for cops being assassinated twice in New York City. Um, but I thought his word choice and the things he said at some funerals, and I said, wow, I wish the president just said that a little differently. Or I wish somebody who had been one of his handlers had suggested, hey, boss, maybe that's not the best way to say that. President Trump is that times a gazillion with a G. So the things that he says, certainly he has a right to say them. Certainly he did not cause those 11 innocent souls to be snuffed out in Pittsburgh yesterday. Certainly did not. And certainly he's not responsible for that whack job, and uh, that's what he was, who drove around in that, uh, you know, the Scooby-Doo van, the, the, the mystery mobile with all, those, with all those stickers on the outside. He didn't, he didn't cause that. But I think for elected officials, especially for the president, because, you know, all of us as responsible adults have a responsibility not to say things that somebody else may, may misinterpret or view as a call to action. And sometimes I get it. It's political rhetoric. I mean, I try to stay between the white lines on CNN. Politics is not my avenue. I'm supposed to call balls and strikes in law enforcement, but I see it and I hear it, and I certainly understand that, that there are unhinged people out there. There are people, uh, Patty, you pointed out, the, the EDP post I made on Twitter, there are emotionally disturbed people that hear that. It becomes a clarion call to them, and they feel like they're being talked to. Look, I mean, again, we go back to the First Amendment, and we want to be able to have free speech, and we, we, we don't want a lunatic fringe on the far extremes of the left or the far extremes of the right to change our way of life or prevent us from having robust conversations and, 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 and the, 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 the space to speak freely. I just think we need to be careful. 
And, again, I, I, I look back and I chuckle when I think about how critical I was of President Obama for saying things that I thought, oh, that was, yeah, I wouldn't have said it that way, or, man, that could be misinterpreted. But now you've got people that are look, literally looking at this and saying, you know, hey, um, we've got to take our country back, and, hey, uh, we've got to stop these illegal caravans because these are armed invaders, and, and, and hey, we've got to stop these, these awful people, you know, politicians that we disagree with, people that just love this country just as much as we do. People I work with at CNN, they don't all share my political views by a long shot, but they're people that love our country as much as I do. They're no less a patriot than I am. They do a different job. Some of them have been in harm's way. And, and, and Patty and Renato, I'll tell you this, standing on the corner of 9th Avenue and 58th Street, uh, the days are running together, but I have to believe that was Thursday. Now it's everything. Maybe it was Wednesday. I can't even remember. But whatever day it was that the bomb scare happened in the CNN building at the time Warner Center was evacuated, there was a cameraman there. And I, I'm not going to say his name, but I had met him before. I met him in Parkland. I met him in Santa Fe. I met him in Vegas. So those names all mean something. So me traveling to those places in the wake of, of tragedies. This guy hoisted a camera, put it up on his shoulder, and if you saw his arm, his forearm, it was shattered from an IED that had exploded in Iraq while he was there working for CNN. I mean, just when you think about that, I mean, look, it, it, it makes chills go up my spine because, you know, I, I've been to that, those places. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan. And I've seen people give full measure there. And I've seen people whose bodies were shattered by, by bombs or bullets. This guy's a cameraman. You know, when he signed up for the union, uh, you know, that wasn't part of the deal. But it was because he's the guy that throws his hand up in the air and says, you need somebody to go over there with the, uh, with the anchor and, and cover this? I'll go. You need somebody to go to Syria? Oh, yeah, that's not too much of a hot spot. Yeah, I'll go. You need somebody to go to Iraq? I'll go. So to see him there, and I hugged him when I saw him when I got on set, to see him there, it just it, there's such a fine line in distinction. Yes, our military are the best of the best. Our law enforcement are the best of the best. Yes, those are the folks that are trained to go to the sound of the guns. Look what happened in Pittsburgh. Four cops shot, one still in critical condition. Yes, they are a cut above. But I look at this new family of journalists, and I see it now because people yell things at me. I've had people say, don't wear CNN stuff. I'm like, I'm a former Army Ranger, a member of the FBI's hostage rescue team, probably as conservative as they come. And I've got people yelling at me about being a beta male or, you know, CNN sucks or, you know, Hillary this, whatever. It's like we're so out of our minds right now. We just need to tamp down the rhetoric. I know people have said that a million times. I know it sounds trite and cliched, but that's what needs to happen. I'm not blaming the president for what happened this past week. I'm not. I'm going to say that right now. But it doesn't help matters when the person with the biggest bully pulpit in the entire galaxy doesn't immediately come out and try to tamp this down. Wow. That is the perfect ending to this uh, podcast. And I will tell you, James, you are a really perfect guest to have on this topic. I can't thank you enough. Outstanding. Thank you so much, James. Guys, thanks for having me. I hope you have me back in the future. And, and thanks so much for asking me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 